Sean. So, uh, you're, you're up and coming, Sean. I have great hope for you. <laughs> thank you. Someday you too will be a creative producer. And no, you actually are already. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Sorry, kind. I'm, I'm working on it. Um, but uh, so the compliments and the, uh, the recognition right back to you. Thank you. Um, let's talk about your show. Uh, what's Control Room for anybody who hasn't heard of it or seen it? Well, uh, before MCTV existed, before we were a studio over on Plain Street under the auspices of uh, Adelphia and Comcast, um, there were other shows on, and I began making appearances <laughs> on the other shows. And then Bob Parkus and I and Steve Lynch got together and said, we should have our own show. And uh, so we set it up, and we, we actually, back in those days, we we actually built the table, and we built the set, and we had <laughs> circular saws, sawdust flying all over the place, which in this pristine studio you wouldn't allow right now. And uh, we built the set, and uh, we, we started our own show. And um, But it, we began to, like, want to go our own ways. Mm -hmm. So I started, I, I, I uh, uh, split off from Bob Parkas. Um, started my own show, but because, as you know, it's hard to find help to help yeah. out with shows. It's hard to have somebody come in and operate your boards and, uh, you know, operate the cameras, etc. that I, I devised a way to do a show by myself. I could operate the controls, operate the mics, the cameras, and the, and the video and the clips all by myself, but the only way I could do that was if I was actually sitting in the control room. <laughs> So, so hence I, the name. So I hence the name. So it's like, so I set up a camera and I pointed it into the control room, and you saw me there sitting at the control panel, and uh, that's that's where the name came from. But you know the topic and the, the theme of it all was public involvement, mm -hmm. and primarily uh, local politics and social issues. But the theme of control room also is that there's a parallel. Everything that happens locally has its parallel on the national level and on the state level and even on the international level. Right. Human nature being what it is, you can understand what's happening at almost any level of government and even in society if you can understand your neighbors and your local and the local residents and local affairs. Understanding people. Yeah, understanding people because the motives are basically the same. I said human nature being what it is. Mm. You know, people say, oh, why do the congressmen do what they do? Or why, you know, or why do our local selectmen or, you know, different boards act the way they do? You know, that kind of stuff. And uh, so that's the key. I think that's the key. So, again, the other part of it is participation. You know, we're always trying to get people to participate because uh, people like myself abhor dictatorships and and autocracy and, and anything that um, tries to put people in their place and silence them. Yeah. An absolute 100%, you know, free speech advocate. Um, me too, yeah. Free, the, free speech is paramount to me. All the way. And, and, um, and thanks to certain rulings and efforts of others going back decades now, and, and I always cite Judge Antonin Scalia, the, the late Judge Antonin Scalia who passed away a few years ago. He was involved in an early case involving uh, 
basically what became public access. I mean, if it wasn't for things that, that he ruled on and other, and other people worked on, we wouldn't have public access cable the way we have it now, which has turned out to be a great outlet. Remember the old days, if a TV station or a radio station had, if their management had an opinion, they'd do an editorial. Mm. But it was then determined that they had to provide equal time. So there were always editorial responses. And besides letters to the editor in a newspaper, I mean, it's, it's a whole history of public involvement in media. You know, I'm sure there are probably courses on it. You probably studied some of it yourself. Yeah, we go to uh, we go to conferences and we learn about that stuff. And there's a guy, I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, but he's considered the godfather of uh, community media. Um, yeah. And uh, it was all about free speech and just free expression. And you probably talked about Hyde Park in London and you know, oh, yeah. getting up on the soap, where the term soapbox came from, etc. <laughs> And, but now in this age, and of course, look at how it's gone beyond there now. Look mm. at how it's developed into YouTube and Twitch and exactly. Instagram and Twitter. I mean, it's just it's mind-boggling. The public square is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Right. And, and people credit um, YouTube and Twitter and all that with Trump's election, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, because there really is a, such a thing as mainstream media. It does exist. Oh, for sure. You know, and uh, it's not a figment of anybody's imagination. It's not a scapegoat. It's it's not the boogeyman. Mm. There is a mainstream media. There are certain media outlets that are owned by a very small group, a relatively small group of people, but now everybody is can be media. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As long as you're uh, entertaining, or at least you can keep people's attention, yeah. um, and your product, so to speak, looks good, you know, you can be a media outlet. You can publish your own books. You can have your own uh, podcasts. You can. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's what we're doing right now. That's what we're doing right now. And, and, and so, you know, going back just 15, 20 years with my involvement with mm-hmm. cable TV locally. Um, and by the way, I was a geek in high school. <laughs> Me I, too. I got out of high school in the 70s, and I was a geek back in the days when we had <laughs> these big, giant black and white cameras and reel-to-reel video decks and all that. And I used to tape uh, different school events, sports events, uh, you know, plays, whatever I could. Mm-hmm. You know? And that was a way of reaching out. Of course, we didn't have cable TV. Yeah. You, know? you had to, like, get 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 a ta- copy of a tape and play it on a, a, for an audience at a, at a gathering or something like that. It was not, high, it was not easy to do. But, um, again, uh, going back 15, 20 years, cable access was, like, really the hot thing. You know, it was really mm-hmm. cool. People... And in this town, it was uh, it really found it was uh, there was a great reception, a great audience for it. You know, there were all kinds of characters on the on Bob <laughs> Headland, the former state senator, now the mayor mayor of Weymouth, uh, had a show on professional wrestling. <laughs> and uh, there was uh, George Shaw and Rusty Tremonti, and uh, I could go on about all the different characters. And actually, some of the old tapes still survive. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, community media, um, for back of, lack of a better term, is almost like a meme in that, like, you can, there's always just, like, the strange, the strangest of the strangest where you, uh, is what you're going to find in community media. You know, not all the content is really strange. Right. But if it's strange and it's someone's trying to make it, it's probably in community media. Yeah, and it kind of <laughs> got a reputation because people began using community media to push the envelope. Yeah. You know, and then eventually... Uh, they said, yeah, if you want to see something crazy, go to go to, go to cable. You know, that's yeah. where you're going to find the wackos. 
but uh, and the risque stuff. Oh yeah, we. Uh, I went to a conference uh, in I think October or November of this past year, and uh, there, uh, you know, it's all these local access community uh, studios from. New England and New York and New Jersey. It's like New Jersey up in this northeast corner of the country. And uh, we went to, we all went to a show, uh, and it was called the Found Footage Festival. And what these guys did, we were in a movie theater, and what these guys, these two guys did, they're stand-up comedians, they went around to community access studios around the country, and it's collected just like the weirdest of the weird. And uh, they just kind of put it all together in one, uh, one show, and made jokes about it and it was it was hilarious just like, but it, it perfectly encapsulated that that meme of community media and, and I, bet, I would imagine probably some of the funniest stuff was people trying to be serious oh yeah <laughs> it's like, hey hey i'm trying to do a serious show it is a serious topic you know i have to, i have this fantasy someday steve carell who spends time in marshfield mm-hmm. is going to come to our studio and we're going to do a skit on old cable TV, what it was like. <laughs> that would be really funny. He would be perfect. So if Steve Carell's listening, uh, I've got I've got a screenplay for you down here at Marshfield Community TV. But yeah, but again, it, 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 the service to it actually, I mean, but there's good. It's mm. good service oh, to absolutely. the community. And uh, as you know, here at MCTV, you know, all of us are always trying to encourage people to come in and get involved. Mm. I think the repertoire here, the programming seems to be expanding, so it seems to be working. But at the same time, again, it's so easy to just set up podcasts now. I yeah, people I, urging me to do a video podcast for you, but I, I don't know. I mean, know. this little setup we got right here took me maybe five minutes to put together. Yeah. And uh, it's just two microphones, a little mixer, and uh, an audio recording device. It's, uh, this is like the like Easy Bake Oven was yeah. <laughs> 40 years ago. Now it's like... Easy big broadcaster. Yeah, know, like, like just, uh, we don't have to fight for uh, radio air t- airtime. Right. You know, we can just record it whenever and I'll air it, and people can listen to it on its own and, on their own time. But you know what? We're also living in an era where some people are now cracking down on these these uh, outlets of free expression. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's um, some people aren't are really concerned about. Gee, you know, it's it's almost to be a cynic to put it this way darkest way possible. Some people don't like what they're hearing. They want to shut some people up. Oh, absolutely. That's existed forever. Yeah. Uh, it's just now that you, you, with the internet and all that stuff, more people can just be loud and say what they want to say. And, you know, you're going to rustle some jimmies, you know. Um, but uh, the people that also want to put it down also get the power of the internet and all those other things. So they can try and, you know, put spin on what you say yeah. or uh, try to take you down. They can, what is it, what are they calling it? Um, well, the shadow banning. Character assassinations now. Yeah, there's doxing, there's shadow banning, there's yep. uh, shaming. There's, I mean, look at like, a, I'm, I'm a great fan of uh, Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he, he's, he's very balanced. Some people, oh, he's too conservative, some people say. And uh, I say, no, he's very balanced. He, he, he provides an outlet for people from different viewpoints to come on his show. I mean, his house was surrounded. His wife was home alone. His house was basically stormed by really? protesters. Um, and look at other people that are just trying to speak out the attacks. The, uh, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's something something going on here. Yeah, I mean, we're really learning the power of free speech in the Internet. Um, we're really pushing. I think we're at a time period where we're really uh, figuring out what the boundaries are, what the power of it is. I don't think everybody's quite realized how 
much this has gotten into our life and how big an effect it can have on the way people view the world. Like, uh, just to go back to mainstream media, if you were to watch MSNBC and then you were watching Fox News, you're seeing two completely different worlds, like, yeah. existing over the same space. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, I mean, both those channels are designed to get people all whipped up in a fury, but you know what I'm saying. Well, I'm, I, I see the, I, 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 I understand your point. I see the same world. But I see uh, agendas, and um, that's that's what you got to filter. You know, that's 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 the problem with having so much out there. Um, that you've got to filter. You've got to learn to evaluate it. And, yeah. Uh, of course, you know, that's another problem. Is that you know, are people capable of filtering and evaluating it for themselves? Yeah. I mean, you can't that's... be subjected to the same drumbeat mm-hmm. from whatever source, from whatever. Well, part of the political spectrum. If you're subjected to the same drumbeat over and over and over and over and over again, it's going to get to you. And if you don't vary your sources and sample from mm-hmm. other places, you're, yeah, you're, I, it, I think your thinking is swayed. You can start yeah. just acting in a certain way or believing a certain thing. Um, and people get comfortable with those opinions. Yeah, they do. Like they they it, don't want to be dissuaded. It kind of fits where they are, um, you know, mentally maybe or yeah. uh, their viewpoint of, of the world. And isn't that funny? Because people—that's—that's that's what we're seeing now. By even in surveys, that people are becoming intransigent. You know, they're, they're getting set in their beliefs and their positions. Yeah. And they're not straying. They double down. It's basically a, a, a bimodal mm-hmm. curve right now. You see left and right politically, and those two humps or modes are getting further and further apart, while mm-hmm. they're both getting higher. So more and more people are settling into one camp or the other, and, and that's where they're staying. It's strange to me, too, because if someone, like, identifies with, I don't know, say the left you, or the right, whenever they say that, they you can almost tell all the opinions they have based on in political things and things like that. Like, they, it's like playing for a team. Right. And well, that's another thing that's been studied, too, because, again, you know, we're aware of this, you know, because we, we're kind of... We're the sentient beings. Uh, we, see, we see it every day. <laughs> and we see it all the time. Um, but the one thing I will say, because I tend to be more conservative, obviously, but as people know me, but I know that people I know that tend to be conservative also can't agree on anything. It's amazing <laughs> how much division there is on the right side of the political spectrum, on candidates, on the degree of commitment to a certain point mm-hmm. of view, but on the left side of the spectrum, and this has been proven again by academic studies, people tend to be more in, in lockstep on on issues. Mm-hmm. You take a list of 20 issues, from abortion to uh, to uh, immigration, whatever, something like that, and you'll see they're pretty much in line on the left. On the right, it's like, well, I, I, I'm against abortion, however, in a certain case, or immigration, you know, we should have merit, blah, 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 merit-based. So there's, there's more variance. And um, I'm just seeing evidence in studies that, that show that that's, that that's true. That's great. But, but, again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that we are polarized and mm-hmm. we're bimodal now when it comes to what's going on. And, and um, but, you know, shows, cable TV or discussion groups um, online or, uh, or 
places where you can get that stuff out, yeah. you know, and talk about it. Um, this is where you can get your basically unfiltered opinion out there. Yeah, yeah, get your unfiltered opinion out yeah, there. Just don't, yeah. don't swear on live TV, you know. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> but no, it's been, it's, I, I've, uh, it's kind of a, been a good experience to be involved with the cable studio and to see it advance the way it has technologically. Yeah, you've been here over 10 years now. Over 10 years MCTV, but again, many years before mm-hmm. over at the old studio under the old uh, control, under the old management. Um, those were the days of, uh, you know, the big giant VHS cassettes, <laughs> you know, and, and when we wanted to play a clip or we wanted to edit something, you had to, you know, uh, basically turn the dials and move the tape <laughs> to a certain point and you had to move the dial back and forth, back and forth, and you see the image jumping mm-hmm. on the screen off of the tape, and you'd say, oh, right about here, yeah, as long as, like, basically the, the standard was, if you could, if you were editing two pieces of tape from two different sources, if you could sort of get the switch over within a second, <laughs> you know, then you were right on. That was going to be a nice, sharp edit, you know. But yeah. Of course, here, it's, it's everything is digital now. You're down to the thousandths of a second. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. precise. Yeah. Incredible. You know, good, good sound quality, good video mm-hmm. quality, HD quality, they call it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not a geek when it comes to all those issues. But uh, I just, I'm just trying to get, get a message out there. And again, to try to get people to pay attention and participate. Yeah. That's, that's I've grown up that way. I consider myself a patriot. I mean, I, I grew up in Dorchester. I was born in Cambridge, the People's Republic of. And, um, I mean, I grew up with history all around me. Mm-hmm. Boston's a, a very historic city. As so. a, as a, yeah, as a kid in Boston, I mean, um, there was a house built in 1710 or something yeah. on my street. Uh, they had a collection of antiques and portraits mm. that were just stunning. Uh, the first parish church, I was in St. Peter's Parish in Dorchester on Bowdoin Street, and um, I was in that area. Um, the first parish church, was, which they call them locally, is known as the White Church. Mm-hmm. If you're driving up the expressway into Boston, you'll see the IBEW Hall on the left. If you look up on the hill behind the IBEW, you'll see a white steeple. Mm-hmm. As kids, we used to play in there, and the antiques the library collection that was in there. I mean, there were books that Cotton Mather owned, you know. Um, Puritans, I mean, going back to the 1600s, there was artifacts and books and furniture. And and, uh, and being inside there in such a place of history. Um, and all the field trips we took as, as school students, you know, to all the different sites. We had Dorchester Heights, we had the USS Constitution, we had Bunker Hill and various remnants from the revolution. Mm. Of course, then required reading back in those days for school kids was Johnny Tremaine, you know, the, the, the colonial boy, you know, and, and uh, trips to Lexington and Concord. And, and, uh, and I had a big family, lots of aunts and uncles and cousins, and um, many of them were educators, teachers, mm-hmm. you know, so they understood the history and there were always books everywhere and holiday time, there was always discussion about what's going on, you know, in terms of government and politics and history and all that. And, uh, it was really cool. And, and at the same time, all my grandparents were from the old country, from the 
Eastern Europe. And I knew my two grandfathers, and I knew my, my father's mother. My mother's mother died very young, um, so I never met her. But at the same time of being immersed in all this history all around us, um, there was a bridge to the old immigrants. Mm. And to be a very to, different perspective, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, and from a historical perspective, mm. in other words, like, hey, Grandpa, you know, because uh, we had different names for them, but, uh, you know, uh, when was the first time you saw an airplane? You know, that kind of thing, you know. What was the, tell us what it was like in the village. And yeah. Every time there was a holiday gathering, my grandfather, my father's father especially, oh, he would tell the stories about the old village. Oh, my goodness. You know, just amazing stuff. And Yeah, I remember when the railroad came to town. You know, <laughs> and I remember a balloon flew over the town. You know, that kind of stuff. Like a hot air balloon? Yeah. Hot air balloon. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then describing his what life was like and you know how tough it was mm-hmm. you know on the farms over there and what the trip was like coming over here and then they had friends that were veterans of World War One oh wow you know and I met them I still remember as a kid you know talking to them so there was this great great bridge for me I was really mm-hmm. privileged I mean to have people like that to talk to um, friends and relatives and then to be in all the history around me, mm. and then to have relatives that were, uh, you know, real, you know, smart-thinking people that mm. talked about the issues. Yeah, it was quite, quite an amazing thing. And I, I, I like to kind of bring that with me to the shows. Yeah. So to me, it's like I'm bringing all, I'm bringing all that their perspective, and their experience to my shows, and uh, so I can talk about a number of issues. That must be really interesting too, because you've got. Good, you got to you grow up. You get this good sense of just you know Boston history, American right. history, but then you've also you know where your ancestors came from. Right. You're what second, third generation American. All my grandparents, yeah. Yeah, they you were, know where they came from. You've got these stories of the old villages. Right. And and then it, 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 what helps is that you know the work I did, my career in environmental consulting work, um, took me all around the city. I dealt mostly in um, related, uh, the area of consulting that I was in was basically uh, identifying and surveying and, and remediating uh, old industrial sites. So I could go into an old factory, an abandoned factory site, and I would have to research you know, what was done there, what, what processes were done there, what kind of materials were used. You know? mm-hmm. I even interviewed people that used to work at some of these old sites. And I would find out what they did. And I would find out from them the hazards that they were exposed to and how they suffered and how they, many of them you know, had since had died yeah. from various exposures. Both of my grandfathers were machinists. And both of them, when they first came here, took any job they could get right away. Mm-hmm. My grandfather worked on a dredge, you know, down in New Jersey, uh, worked on a, a lumbering, a lumber camp worked in mills. Mm. My other grandfather was a coal mine, worked in the coal mines. You know, I mean, so that that all came into, it's funny how that kind of then kind of came part of my work in environmental consulting work because I knew what these guys had to put up with, how back then labor laws weren't what they are now, safety laws yeah. were not what they are I'm kidding. now. <laughs> I mean, people died young yeah. from 
black lung and from exposure to uh, organic chemicals, et cetera, et cetera, and all kinds of cancers and everything like that. So, um, but again, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing I bring with me all that I carry with me all the time. And then I was lucky enough in the environmental, as I was in the environmental consulting field to, to, get, a, to get work overseas. Mm -hmm. So I was working with uh, U.S. government projects um, over in the former Soviet Union. And uh, in my spare time, what did I do? But I could find the old family villages. That's really cool. So now I connected to the old family villages. I actually got to see where all the folks came from. Um, and um, at the same time, I was working to help clean up the environment over there. So you're not only cool. cleaning up things, but you're also learning, like, you know, where you come from, right, really. Right, right, right. And it all, kind of, it all kind of fit together in a really neat way. And um, it's... It, but it, it also, again, it gives me insights and it, and it gives me knowledge. Um, fills my brain with a bunch of worthless stuff. <laughs> but it also fills my brain with a bunch of stuff that I can use now and I can apply, um, you know, just to my everyday life. Mm -hmm. As a resident, as a citizen, as a taxpayer, whatever, you know. And um, if you've got that kind of knowledge and if you've got the desire to... Uh, support and be involved in your community, you know, why not? Mm -hmm. You know, you, should, yeah. you try to use it. You know, I, I tried to use my knowledge of the environment to um, to do some oversight and uh, offer some input on some of the projects in town, you know. Yeah. And, and usually my, my viewpoint, my opinions don't mesh very well with the developers and the politicians, and that's where you run into trouble. <laughs> I think that's so, probably a large basis for your show right there. <laughs> so, you know, but it's the people that know their neighborhood better than, than anybody else. Mm. You've been a long-time resident. You know, uh, you know your environment. You know your surroundings better than some developer that comes in from who knows where. Yeah. You know, and has different motives mm. than you might have. You know, people come in here with profit motive, development Yeah, I mean, Marshfield's kind of a paradise by the sea, you know? It's, it's uh, amazing, amazing, amazing from an environmental standpoint. It's so many different types of ecosystems just in one location. You and, got marsh, and, you got forest, you know, you got beach. It's and we have a lot of places where they inter intersect. Mm. When, you, when a wetland intersects an upland, that is like prime ecological oh, yeah. real estate because different animals need the water, they need the dry areas. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's always this talk about turtles. Oh, those damn turtles. <laughs> those effing damn turtles. You know, why do we always have to stop building because of the damn turtles? You know, But the thing is, is that the turtles that they're talking about live in those really prime zones yeah. because the baby turtles need the water and the mud the snails and all the other critters in the mm. wet areas when they're young. But then as they get older, they need the higher, drier areas for nesting and foraging mm. and all the other activities. So it's not so much the turtle it's itself that you, that, that is the, the key thing. It's the fact that they, they're, they're a, uh, an indicator 
of that kind of environment, of that kind of zone, which all other animals need too. Yeah. So you're, when you're protecting those so-called turtles, to my mind, what you're really doing is you're protecting like the most valuable ecological real estate that exists because it, it serves so many purposes for so many different species. That's where the, where the key battle is. Some people say, oh, why can't we just take the turtles and put them in a zoo or something or in a cage or whatever? Then we'll protect them. No, that, that's it's, not the point. the point. But I think we're getting more in, it's, um, it's just like in the battle over free speech we're mm-hmm. talking about where there's some people that are, that are like saying a lot and some people that are trying to restrict speech or control speech. In the environmental business, there's strong forces for development and profit, and there's people that are pushing back, saying, no, you know, we need to become more enlightened about how to protect the environment. I mean, I know projects that were done in this town where all the environmental concerns were not fully vetted. You know, even to this day, they're not being fully vetted. I mean, there are things that we that we became aware of later on uh, in more recent times called the Pathways, uh, you know, uh, there there are through ways where animals travel, mm-hmm. and they're very critical. Uh, and for example, there are there are connections between the Green Harbor River Basin and the South River Basin, and these pathways that animals travel on, all types of animals, deer and everything else, are necessary because a population in one area can't just interbreed and mix in that one area. Yeah. They gotta move. Populations and the genetics of these different critters have to mix between areas in yeah. order to ensure their survival. So um, some of these pathways have been cut in Marshfield. But at the time the projects were being considered, um, they weren't they weren't being protected. You know? And it's a shame because that the the natural areas in this town, I feel like really are probably like 60% at least of the character of this town. Right. Um, you know, everybody likes to talk about the beaches and stuff like that, but the wetlands and the woods and things like that, that really adds a certain character to this town that um, you don't really see in a lot of other towns. Right. No, and Marshfield is, is very diverse in that regard. It is. We have, a, we have lots of uplands, and we have massive amounts of meadows and marshes mm-hmm. and swamps. And again, these wet areas are so critical. They, Absolutely. They are cradle for basically anything. You name any any species and you don't have that you don't have that marsh on that wetland there, forget it. You're done. Nothing grows. So you get everything's gonna you know, it's the world's not gonna end in twelve years. I'm not I'm not a tree hugger and I'm not <laughs> AOC, all right? But you know, without those critical areas, man, you're cooked. I mean there are small bugs that live in the marshes that fall into or go into creeks and streams, okay, that feed little fish, and the little fish swim out and get eaten by bigger fish, and then bigger fish eat those little big fish, et cetera, et cetera, all the way out to It goes on the food chain, yeah. It's all part of the food chain. Green Harbor River Basin, for example, which is near my house, uh, is in, like, the North River and the South River. But the Green Harbor River, I think, is important because it does, just doesn't get the attention that it deserves. There are so many marshes and meadows salt marshes and everything connected to that system that are feeding into Massachusetts, Cape Cod Bay, you know, which are, and all that's food for all the critters out there, you know, and uh, it's, it, need, it needs to be protected better. Um, 
North River and the South River have gotten a lot of attention, a lot of focuses on those, but we need to have more focus on the Green Highway River Basin and and all the things that impact it. Yeah. You know, like the airport. You know, I, that's why I had problems with the expansion of the airport because of what it involved, the impacts to the waterways, the creeks, the Green Harbor River, um, the use of arsenic growing in treated pilings into the ground right on the banks of the creeks and the rivers, you know. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunately people didn't take all that into consideration. It wasn't fully vetted. It's tough. We need experts to talk about these types of things. Yeah, that, and it's that's hard for like the average person to you know yeah. go out and do all the research because there's just so much to know, you know. And if you've got experience that you feel my field with environment, that I'm going to take what I know and try to apply it to help and protect my my environment. Anybody that you've got experience in, in media and, and, uh, and uh, from production and technical viewpoint, and then you know you use what you know to help our members here, help your members and help your community. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I, I just don't see any other way of doing it. It's kind of an affliction, I guess. But but I've been lucky with the way the way I've been through my life experience. Interesting, and uh, being able to travel the way I did, now being here in Marshfield now. But at the same time, it doesn't get any easier. I don't think anything ever does. No, never does get any easier. I, I, I uh, and my son now is 21, and, uh, and he comes in here and adds his own stuff too. Have you seen some of the stuff he does? It's pretty good. Uh, not for a while. I don't know what he's been up to lately. He made the this type of. Uh, it was almost like a military debriefing type thing where he's got like a map and he's got like these jets coming across like the map and it's like this very militaristic looking thing and it like zooms in and it's got like the, it pops up with uh, like some uh, lights and like uh, spotlights on this uh, spot where it's like mission this, this and that. Right. Um, and it just looked really cool. It looked really, it looked almost like a, uh, like a military video game like intro for like a mission that you're about to do and it, it was really well done. Yeah. It took him a couple days to do, but it came out really nice. See, we have Prussian blood. <laughs> <laughs> so that's easy. That is the military planning and that's <laughs> something like that. Something like so that. We must have order. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, he's a big, he's a big history buff. Yeah, he uh, he's always telling me about like uh, tanks and uh, other things like yeah, that. Yeah, because he's into the whole technical angle of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole area of specialization for mm. some people. There are military historians, and, and then there are people who are into the whole um, uh, technical aspect of, mm. of military and other logistics, mm. you know, related to other, other, other things, construction or whatever. Just like there are people that can tell you the specifications on a different Caterpillar <laughs> truck or something like that. Uh, you ever see the movie Road Warrior? No, but I, I've heard of it. Oh, okay. Uh, there's, a, there's a fantastic scene. If you talk about media, one of the, my favorite scenes of all times is from Road Warrior. And, you know, there's this is post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like Mad Max. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, Mad Max, that's what I mean. And um, there's a scene where these, um, there's this colony of survivors 
it seems like it, it's set in a, it's, you're in a setting where in this world you have different groups and colonies and tribes of people that are trying to survive. Yeah. And then there are other group, groups and tribes around them that are always trying to exploit or kill off the other tribe. It's just free for all. It's the Wild West. <laughs> yeah. And there's one scene where there's a group of survivors and they're in this encampment. And they're being attacked by the bad guys yeah. uh, with crazy masks and swords, <laughs> crossbows, and everything else, spears. And uh, so the, 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 the group, uh, the, the good guys, you might say, the, it's, it's like, how do we get out of here? We have to, we have to plan a breakout. You know, let's, if we get all our vehicles ready to go and we, get a, we marshal enough gasoline and other provisions, we can make a dash for a place where we know we'll be safe. You know, they're planning an escape away from all the mm-hmm. predatory tribes. And at one point, the predatory tribes attack them and damage some of their vehicles, you know, and they're like, oh, what are we going to do now, you know? Mm-hmm. We're up the creek. And uh, so the leader of the good guys says to the mechanics that are looking over the dam, one of the main trucks, what's wrong with the truck? What are we going to do? And the guy says, well, you've got the you get a bed shaft, you flywheel, uh, the timing chain is broken, uh, you know, the, the lifters are gone, you know, he's, this whole long list, it's like you go to a garage, yeah, and the yeah. mechanic is telling you, oh, this is bad, man, you better get your checkbook out there. <laughs> so, so the leader says to the mechanic, all right, okay, fine, what's it going to take to fix it? Yeah. And the guy goes, how much time do you need? And he goes, we're going to need like three days or something like that. And the leader says, you've got two hours. <laughs> And the mechanic goes, mm, he looks, thinks it over, goes, mm, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I like I like the uh, the technical angle on things, and that's my son apparently has kind of picked up on that. Yeah, he's got that mind for it too. Yeah, but hey, you know, and it may be stereotypical. You know, some people say, oh, there's a guy thing. You know, you should Might let be, girls let girls have toy trucks. I mean, I grew up. If they want to, with, sure. Right, right, and and let boys play with dolls if they want to play with dolls. If they want to. <laughs> See, I'm in I'm in my 60s now, and I mean that's the area I grew up in. Yeah. You know, I'm on the tail end of the boomer generation, and, and we grew up with GI Joes and Tonka trucks, mm-hmm. and Structo trucks, and the, uh, you know, what's the other thing? The erector sets. Oh yeah. The steel erector sets with nuts and bolts and mm-hmm. everything. I remember doing playing with that kind of stuff all my life. We used to dig tunnels when we were kids. We would build forts. Uh, we, we did all that kind of stuff. We'd go to construction sites and scrounge up nails and boards and hammers, <laughs> and we could build and build and build. That, that was a great. That was a, that was and scooters, mm. go karts, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm fortunate. I uh, I'm on kind of like the tail end of. Like, I was a kid just before the internet really exploded. I'm 26 now. So, like, once I was about 15, that's when, like, the internet really became uh, this big thing. So I had a childhood of, you know, go-karting, you know, building forts, riding bikes, um, you know, building snow forts and things like that. So I'm lucky I got all that before. Um, but I did play a ton of video games. <laughs> there you go. So now, now instead of you building go-karts and stuff like that, like we did, like take an old pair of roller skates and yeah. nail it to the bottom of a board. <laughs> I mean, you could go and, and uh, do a 3D printout of a go-kart, yeah. basically. Yeah, I have a friend that uh, 3D printed his own drone. 
He's, he's a mechanical engineer. He's just yeah. he's a brilliant dude. He just <laughs> he's like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make my own drone. I'm just gonna design it, 3D print it, put all the circuitry together, and within like a week he did it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're living in an age of transition to, in mm. so many in, in such rapid. What a time to be alive! <laughs> it's crazy. It is. It's 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 um, uh, yeah. I mean, just in every sphere. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I, I don't know. I mean, imagine it 20 years from now. I, I can't. I don't know. It's a crazy world. I just 10 years ago is a completely different world. I don't know what it's going to be like in 10. You know, 10 more, 2030. What's that going to be? It's it's fraught with opportunity. Oh yeah. But it's also fraught with danger. Yeah, yeah. Because of, again, the threats to privacy, for example, the, the threats to values. People like it, like you know, people don't like the idea of genetic manipulation. People don't like the idea of like picking what kind of child you want. Yeah, it's coming though. Uh, will it come? Will it, will we have to? I mean, robotization. I mean, jobs being taken away. Yeah. We will. You know. I mean, I, I'm very, like I, I was saying it on my show last night, I am very much, um, I have kind of an affinity or an appreciation for people that are controversial now, like AOC, mm-hmm. Cortez, and people in your age group. I understand where a lot of this, this unrest is coming from and this, yeah. this desire for real radical changes, socialism and whatever, because I think those people that are saying those things are cognizant of the fact that, wow, there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. It's like, what am I going to do? Yeah. I want some certainty in my life, and if even if we have to legislate it, I want certainty because I can see what's going to happen. I'm not going to... I have a student dead, and jobs are going away, and, and I'm being bombarded with information from all different sides, and the cacophony and the conflict is increasing. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, I see the phenomena of Ocasio-Cortez as almost being, you know, expected. Yeah, uh, I know personally for myself, like, yeah. it's, I definitely struggle with that uncertainty because, you know, my whole life up to a certain point, you know, people were telling me, you know, do this, do that, you know, you go to school, you go exactly. to college, you get a job, you know, and, you know, that's just like the quote-unquote safe route, and that path isn't certain anymore it's not clear it's you know the world you know you can't fault the previous generation for it you know no one saw how quickly the world was going to change yeah and what do you do when your iphone breaks down or something or you lose uh, i'm okay okay you're okay (laughs) i'm okay because i i don't spend too much time on my phone i I know how to you know keep myself uh self-motivated and entertained um but i definitely get that little bit of anxiety you know when my phone dies and it's been a few hours you know it even if i you know I know it's fine. No one's texting or calling me, but you know, you always get. I just have it in the back of my mind. Like, what if I'm missing something that's important right, right now? There you go. There is an anxiety. Yeah. And I think it's people aren't recognizing it. And there's not only is there an anxiety about whether or not you're connected, just because you're so used to being. Exactly. It's the last ten years of my life. It's just been. Right. I've had a uh, a computer on my hip, you know, so to speak, that can just talk to anybody in the world at right. any time. You know, I can. Browse the internet and learn anything I want at any time. <laughs> but there's also an anxiety of the content of what's out there. Oh, yeah. And uh, there are actually, again, I always refer to studies because I am, I would keep my eyes open for 
for people that are actually looking at some of these phenomena closely, but I saw a study that really, and I've showed it on my program, of how suicides among young people are spiking. Yeah, oh yeah. And it's sort of, it, it's, I don't know what the correlation is, but people have speculated there is correlation between the age of the iPad and iPhone and Facebook and Twitter and, yeah. you know, shaming and, yeah. and video bullying and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you say something bad about somebody, mm-hmm. right? In the old days, somebody would make fun of me on the ball field that we're playing or something like that. And you could just fight it and out I'd right there. And I'd get mad and then you could fight and slug each other and everything like that. Now you say something bad about somebody and a million people. And what can you do about it? You know? What can you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have no recourse. And it, it feels kind of lousy. I mean, I... I wow. Yeah, that, that, that kind of uncertainty and that kind of uh, anxiety is... Uh, uh, needs to be looked at. Yeah, the things that made life, quote-unquote, easier for us also came with these new challenges that nobody was really prepared for. Right. I mean, my perspective, I think, right. uh, the reason that suicide rate's probably gone up is because of uh, loneliness, I think. Uh, people right. probably are starting to feel like they don't have a purpose. You know, right. kids, um, you know, you see everybody's, basically their highlight reel on the internet, on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, whatever platform they're using. You, people are only posting, like, themselves having fun or funny yeah. things or, you know, things that grab attention. Right. And that causes you, whether you realize it or not, like, it you internalize that, like, oh, all these people are doing this fun stuff, right. and I'm not, you know. That's or, the nature of advertising. It is. Yeah. And people, they internalize that. They feel like their self-worth goes down. They're, all these people are doing all these things, and I'm not, uh, even though it's those people are probably all doing the same type of thing, you know. And in that same vein, people will, I think people have gotten so used to just, like, defaulting to their phone as entertainment that... You know, you don't go out and you don't uh, you don't go outside as much to, you know, interact in person, which I think we're coming to realize is probably something essential to our subconscious or something like that. Just person to person in in um, in person conversation and social interaction, because, yeah. um, I mean, you could text all day, but there's something different about having a conversation like sitting in front of somebody and just like talking about things right. whereas uh which you just can't really communicate through text or through phone calls this there's like a there's gestures and movements and things like that that you might not realize you're picking up on things in your subconscious that uh yeah, i think want, your brain you needs looks so much people from. in the eyes yeah um you know there's there's a whole sensory experience that goes on when you yeah. interact with somebody like that and 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 to add another twist to the whole thing is look at how intimidated people are now. Oh, yeah. Afraid people are to yeah. interact because you might be accused of something. Mm. Oh, you God, know? yeah. So, Sean, if you take your hand off my knee now, I'd appreciate it. Because for the listeners, of course, we're kidding. But the idea is that, yeah, you, you what's it? Mike Pence, the vice president, says, I never go out alone with a woman anywhere. Yeah. And if, any, if a woman ever came in my office, I'd keep the door open. I mean, that's just one example. And look yeah. at Joe Biden, what he's going through now, you know. And, and and people are just generally afraid. And then we get the horror stories of abductions and oh, yeah. crazy Uber drivers. But all that's people. gone way down. 
in the last 40 years. Like, it's it's like half of what it was, but you see it so much more because right. the media and all those things are just everywhere now. Right. And, and they focus on it because that's what gets them clicks, that's what gets them funding, things like that. That's what gets the attention. And they say, well, that just goes like to the old idea that they say uh, tornadoes have not increased in the United States, but because there's a house everywhere now. Yeah. There's, there's more damage. There's, there's more damage. <laughs> and there's no one misses tornadoes anymore. Yeah. There's more but, people, there's more houses. You know. But the way the media treats these things, and because sex and sensationalism sells, yeah. So not only are you more isolated uh, because people have got their face on a screen and they're not going out and meeting other people, yeah. now they're intimidated. Mm-hmm. And, and also because of traditional roles. I, I had a fun conversation with a guy yesterday, an old-timer from Situate, and he was telling me, hey, I wrote my own book. And it was all about these uh, uh, modern-day kids that find themselves in some kind of a time war. They transport it back like 250 years, and their iPhones don't work, and they're like, and they, they, they just, it's about their struggle about how to get along. Yeah. You know? and, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I, I just, uh, I, I don't know how, how kids are going to deal with it. Traditional roles are changing. Yeah. You know, We're, traditional uh, roles are changing. I mean, I, I always, the way I put it, I comment on that kind of thing on my show as I say, too many young people are giving up the family and the family life and marriage in exchange for, you know, the, 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 uh, an exotic vacation and a kayak or something. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I grew up, again, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in an interesting little zone, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not a 60s hippie, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm not a I'm, I'm kind of in between in there, but I've seen the, transi- the transition from, yeah. of lifestyle from just in a generation or two, mm. how, how everything is being changed and redefined. And I, I see the value um, in, 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 uh, in the sort of the new new wave, but at the same time, I see the traditional value, the value in the traditional way of doing things. Uh, I only have one child, though. I should speak. I should talk about it. Yeah. I, mean, I only have one child. I've only been married once, um, and uh, I have one child. And uh, I don't know. I, I probably sometimes I think I was meant to have maybe six or seven kids. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> do it like the old country. <laughs> yeah, I do like the old country. Big happy family. <laughs> My grandfather used to have an expression because uh, when he came here, he saw how the Americans were living, and he had heard stories about how well the Americans lived kind of like the streets paved in gold kind of thing. Yeah. And there were lots of friendly, you know, people. And Boston was a good place. And the Irish in Boston was mostly Irish. And mm-hmm. they were all nice people. Irish myself. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so he used to have an expression, just like a happy Irish family. He used to, he used to say that all the time. <laughs> That's a, uh, come on. But again, he also had, had it tough, though, my, my father's father came over here by himself. Oh, wow. And he, I think the week after he landed at Ellis Island, or the week before he landed at Ellis Island, he turned 18. Oh, wow. So he came with a few bucks. You know, they used to say, you know, with his boots, you know, that's about mm-hmm. it. And uh, he never saw his family again. Wow. You know, even though there was some written communication and he would send money. Mm-hmm. His area, which was under the control of the Russian Empire at the time.
was about to undergo revolution mm. and World War One revolution. The Soviet and, Union. And the Soviet Union coming in and the purges and everything else that happened uh, since he arrived here in 1913, you know, there were already changes in Russia, in the Russian Empire and the government. Mm-hmm. You know, there was already a couple of upheavals. And then the First World War happened. I just just everything. after, right after that. Yeah. And the front lines were right through his his region. Oh, God. The actual front lines between the German and the Russian Imperial Army was right there. And then came the Russian Civil War. And some of his brothers were actually fought on the Tsarist side. Mm-hmm. They were what they called white Russians. They, sought, they fought for the Tsarists against the, the communist Bolsheviks. And they, uh, and of course, the, the, the white army, the imperialist uh, armies, initially helped by the British and the Americans, but then they were basically abandoned by the British and the Americans, and they lost the Civil War. So some of those people that I that were relatives had to flee the Bolsheviks mm-hmm. and wound up living in China. Oh, wow. Uh, that was the only thing. You had to get as far away as possible from the, <laughs> from the Reds, you know. And um, They were just killing everybody. Oh, and, they, and the Bolsheviks started with the elimination of the clergy. You really? Know, yeah. Christian clergy, that was that was their number one target right off the get go. What then they move over to landlords and things like that? Yeah, any landowners, and then the forced collectivization and confiscation of your goods and everything else that went on. But uh, I, that just comes to mind because, like I was saying, my grandfather, even though he never saw his family again, he had correspondence, and uh, and he got correspondence and some of the letters which I have, I have lots of them. Oh wow! Uh, indicate like you know. Oh, brother, thank you for the $10, you know, that will get me through the month, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather was sending money, just like current immigrants come to this country and they send money home. Um, and some people actually came here. I have a relative that came here and was killed. Um, other other contacts and relatives that came here and, and uh, made some money and went back. Mm-hmm. They went back to the old country, of course, what was waiting for them. But, you know, communist purges in World War II. So, um, and of course, it w- what was really cool was I was working over there, helping to make the sa- world a safer place. Um, the uh, I could find out what happened in that time period. Yeah, I got a lot of information, and it's it's still a pretty big movement because it's a lot safer now to travel over there. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the accommodations are better for people that want to go and check out their roots. There's a lot of stuff on the internet. You can join Jewish Gen or uh, <laughs> Russian imperialism, or you know, whatever Polish group or Baltic group or anything you want to join now, you can now research your background, your genealogy, or, um, and then you can go there and hire a tour guide and go through the archives. And so it's a it's a good connection, and it's not Russian collusion. It's just <laughs> it's just learning something about your, your history, your roots, and you can actually find out what you might according to how your relatives are doing, what you might die of also. So there's that, yeah. that element to it. And of course, the whole DNA thing. Oh, yeah. Everybody's taking a swab now and finding out where they're from. Yeah. You know, you know, even old John Feeney, who's as Irish as, he, as they come, you know, John <laughs> Feeney, who does his show here also, Open Chair, also Wednesday nights. He did his DNA, and he found out that he's uh, part African. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's, it's great stuff, you know, and, but I don't know, um, 
say the world continues to get smaller as the yeah. technology increases. The world's changed place. It's you know, crazy. And we got to get along. Yeah. You know, this we got to learn to understand each other at least. Locally and internationally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just crazy tension in the world right now. It, at least it seems that way. I yeah. mean, every time I talk to people in person, you know, it, I don't yeah. see it. But every time I look on the Internet, it's tense. Yeah. And I, 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 don't, see the, I don't see the need for it, really. Um, it's, uh, I'm well, not a diversity freak either, though. I think people, if people want to associate in, in groups or in, in certain areas, that's fine. There's, there's no problem with that's that. That's fine. Just... I like visiting different <laughs> cultures. I, 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 I'm really into that stuff. I like yeah. I like having a, Me too. a Caribbean fried fish dinner. Uh, I mean, uh, I, 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 almost, I like trying almost anything. Yeah, I, and I, and I, and I, I love getting like, to know people, doing things like that, like learning different cultures. Yeah. It's part of what America's about. Right, right. But there's also a move to homogenize everything, and that's, yeah. that's not, not a good idea. I'm not a fan of that. Um, uh, I don't know. For as long as we're here, we'll, we'll do make the best, I guess. Yeah. So let's change gears. What brought you to Marshfield? Well, my, um, like I said, I was born in Cambridge and grew up in Dorchester. Yep. Um, things got really tough in the city um, in the 70s. I got in the 60s and 70s, things were getting really bad. I mean, I personally know people that were killed. Raped, stabbed, Jeez. robbed, burned out of their houses. It was a rough place to be. And uh, so eventually my family had to flee, flee the city, move out to the suburbs. In the meantime, prior to that, aunts and uncles bought property down here in Marshfield. Uh, two, two, uh, two, two pieces of property. And um, when they passed away, my cousins, some some of my cousins got one of the properties, and then the other property I, I, I bought from from the family, mm-hmm. from the estate. And, uh, but I was a regular visitor here growing up since my aunts and uncles and their friends had places down here. We visited here all the time, starting back you know, when I was a baby, yeah. in the 60s. You know, and, uh, Marshfield was really, it was, a, it was always an adventure. <laughs> Get off of Route 3. And Route 3 didn't go all the way to the Cape back then, uh, back in those days. And people that wanted to travel to the Cape would have to spend the whole day going down Route 53 and Route 3A. Mm-hmm. And the stories I've heard about that, it must have been fantastic. It was So it was an adventure back then. It was less of, a, of an adventure, but still an adventure as us as kids to come here in the 60s. Get off Route 3. Skinny little 139, lined with tall pine trees. The first thing that would hit you coming into Marshfield would be the smell of the pine after you leave the city. Oh, wow. And in the city, we still had the South Bay incinerator. We still had Columbia Point, And we still had uh, what's now Pope John II Park at Neponset. Mm-hmm. All those places were spewing fumes from burning garbage. South Boston power plant was operating black soot coming People out. People were dying from air pollution too, right? Air pollution, leaded gas was still being used. <laughs> that was in the air. Uh, you know, the garbage man would come to our neighborhood. The horses were still coming up and down the streets, <laughs> you know, collecting rags or sharpening knives. Yeah, yeah. And leaving horse manure in the streets. I mean, all the smells and everything in the city. And then you come to Marshfield, you're driving down Pine 
like a pine cavern, you know, with the beautiful pine fresh air, uh, and then hit the beach and then the salt air. Mm-hmm. You know, those smells and Clint, Clint, oh, it's just fantastic. Um, but um, but I I was a, I was a rambling man. I was all over the place, and eventually. So I was here. Sometimes I'd spend months at a time in Marshfield. Sometimes I was just here for a weekend. But I was always actively coming, going back and forth to Marshfield. I would even ride my bicycle here from Boston. Oh, wow. I, I would take the bus here from Boston. I would. Uh, then when I started driving, of course, it became a lot faster and easier. Um, so if I'd come down here on my own, check out the family property or hang out here. If I, when I was working overseas, sometimes I'd have months when I didn't have to be overseas. I'd come down here, mm-hmm. or I'd have other assignments and things to do in, the, in this part of Massachusetts. So, but the bottom line is that we then became full-time residents, my son and I, in 2002. Um, and I was working for a consulting firm nearby. Um, and we were full-time since, since that time. My involvement in here goes way back, way, way back. And I really first started interacting with Marshfield Town Government when um, I caught somebody filling the wetlands in my neighborhood, in what is my, now my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I reported it to the Conservation Commission and went to subsequent hearings. And those people were ordered to restore those wetlands back in the 80s. And they've never been restored. So that bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> So I learned something there, but um, I'm still, and I'm still fighting the battle to protect the wetlands in my neighborhood. Uh, my street, right at this moment, as we speak, is, is a portion of my street is flooded. Oh, really? Because the wetlands have been filled, and because the drainage system in my neighborhood is not working. So it just has nowhere to go. It's had the the, 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 the conduits and the drainage ditches have not been kept open, mm-hmm. and this is an ongoing used to be a, a forested wetlands across the street from me, but now that's all been torn down by the, uh, as a result of the airport expansion. So, um, you know, it's like, it's not the same Marshfield, and some people say, oh, it's just progress. Mm. That's not progress. That's destruction. I mean, I, I'm not against development, but yeah. development has to be compatible yeah. with the natural so that's how I got here. So I've been there, been here ever since. And um, my son went through the Marshfield school system, mm-hmm. you know, from all the way up, all through high school. And now he's in college, and uh, now I'm kind of just bumping around, semi-retired, <laughs> basically. And uh, But I still see the potential, like we talked about earlier. Marshfield is still an amazing place. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, for, if you were, like, just into, say, nature photography, Mm-hmm. You know, collecting flowers or something, or, mm. or uh, just wanted to sit on the beach, yeah, or take a walk in one of the on one of the trails. Uh, yeah, if you go to the Jose Carrera Trail, there's a beautiful view of the North River. Just, oh, it opens wide up. There's so much on the North River that I haven't even sampled yet. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, even up off of Union Street. Mm-hmm. That way. Oh yeah, that's where it is. Um, I like going up to the park in Norwell. The uh, what's her name, Eleanor? Or what's her face? Uh, Lady, she passed away not too long ago. What's the big preserve up there on the north? I don't know. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I, I, forgive me for forgetting your name. 
<laughs> but there's a fantastic preserve up there with trails. Mm-hmm. And there's even a point where there's like a little shed and a dock that sticks out over the North River. It's a great place to bring a date, you know. Yeah. And there's benches along the way. Uh, people jog the trails. So it's not just Marshall, but it's all the places surrounding us mm-hmm. that are amazing. You know, they're just amazing, amazing, amazing places. And it would be, yeah, you, you, you could uh, take all day. Yeah. I mean, the people are pretty great, too. Um, I'm not from here, you know, um, but maybe it's because I'm the guy behind the camera. But everybody's really nice to me. So yeah. <laughs> everybody's welcomed me as, like, a de facto member of the community. So Yeah, but, again, it's, it's, it's a question of human nature. Some people have some people have their own motives and some people are after certain things um, there's, there's a great diversity mm. of, of ideas and opinions in yeah. this town their motivations uh, you know the, the, the only thing when I think of Marshfield now if I think of what's good and what's bad you know not too long ago there was a, a consultant that came to Marshfield and the selectmen engaged this consultant and the consultant had a meeting with the selectmen. It was an official selectmen's meeting, and the consultants got up in front of the selectmen and said, okay, let's do a little exercise. Let's talk about what you like about Marshfield. What's good about Marshfield? What do you like? What is Marshfield's strengths? And the, the selectmen started saying things. Well, you know, we have, you know, you can be, you can live in a little house or a big house, or you can go to the beach or go to the woods. Um, the highway is nearby. We have all kinds of amenities. The people are so kind. You're kind. It's beautiful. And, but the main thing was the natural surrounding. It was general consensus. It was just a natural setting. It was probably the town's biggest asset. And then the consultant said, Now, sorry to do this, but let's talk about the downside. <laughs> what is it? What is wrong with what is the negative things about Marshfield? What's bad? What's what's what problem do you have in Marshfield? That's the biggest problem, that kind of thing. And one one of the selectmen said, conspiracy theorists. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That was the response. I have it on tape. I've played it on my show. Conspiracy theorists. <laughs> in other words, there was a group of us that were politically attuned and active and we were we were questioning taxes. We were causing uh, debate at town meeting, etc., like that. And if we said, "Well, you know, what happened to that three hundred thousand dollars? Why was it transferred the way it was?" Oh, that's a conspiracy. You're saying we're conspiring? No, it's not. A, I was there. I, I saw the transaction. I had the paperwork. But and then one selectman who's now currently still active in town said, "What is it with these people?" He agreed. He said, ah, "What is it with these people?" They just seem to act, well, the term he used, counterintuitive to what we're trying to do, as if what they're trying to do is all good and well-intentioned and mm-hmm. noble, et cetera, et cetera. And all it was was people just speaking up and being involved. But we are now the conspiracy theorists. And we were then at that meeting, the, the term was coined that we are the anti-government, venom-spewing anti-government naysayers. <laughs> That is on tape, on video, because, like I said, in my early times of involvement with Marshfield Cable, we used to, you know, the old the cameras were available to us to take out of the studio and to record meetings. You don't, we, we didn't have what you have now. 
you got cameras in almost every meeting setting. Oh, yeah, I do. You guys are covering all the meetings, which is something I always kept asking for. I was an advocate of that. I used to take cameras to meetings and set them up on tripods and play the tapes on my show. But at that particular meeting, I actually had a camera. I had it on a tripod. I shortened up the legs really, really short, and I put it right on the conference table and pointed it at the selectmen. So I was being pretty quite forward about the whole thing. And I got it on tape that these people were the venom-spewing anti-government naysayers. And that's not what we are. And we didn't start the fight. We did not start it. There were things that our officials were doing that we didn't like, that we questioned, and we persisted. And another another famous uh, politician has been using that term recently, persist, persist. Mm -hmm. Senate candidate in Massachusetts here. Um, We didn't start it. We didn't start the name calling. We, we, We just started that. We started the questioning. And again, this has a tradition that's reflected in the shows and the activities of cable TV here. Mm-hmm. That goes back to people like Pat Bean and Rusty Tremonti and George Shaw. Say what you might say about these people. You know, that they were, you know, they didn't have enough substantiation or hard evidence or, you know, they sometimes they went off on a tangent or off the edge or whatever you want. But they were questioning. They were asking questions, you know. And, uh, so anyway, the point I was trying to make was that, you know, there were good things about the town and there were bad things about the town. But it's funny, depending on who you are and what your perspective is, yeah. you can come up with a different list. <laughs> you know, the bad thing about this town that I find is the traffic. Yeah. The good thing about this town is, again, I see that the natural setting, as we've been talking about, mm. these are the wonderful things about the town. It's a great reason that I'm here. You know, I, I'm trying to protect it much as I can in my capacity. Uh, but the bad thing about this town is not the conspiracy theorists. <laughs> but to me, it's the traffic now because, and I don't know if that, how that can be fixed. Because, I don't know, they already widened 139. Right. But Marshfield is a drive-around town. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got huge density of population down by the water. Mm-hmm. Wrexham, Fieldston, Ocean Bluff, Grand Rock, Acres, you know, everything down that way. And then you get Route 3, which is five miles inland. You've got Shaw's, Stop and Shop, Pembroke, Marshall's, all those other stores are up in that area. So what do you do? You know, to get to Route 3, you've got to drive through town. And it's really only one road. And there's one road in and out. Like like, uh, Chief Tavares said, you know, one of the reasons why crime is so low in this town is because there's no getaway route. (laughs) You you rob a bank in Marshfield and, you know, you got to get through traffic on one road. And meanwhile, hopefully our buddies over at the Pembroke Police Department or someplace have got the roadblocks so so you can't get on the highway and go back to Providence or wherever you came from. I'm not dumb. I'm not saying bad things about Providence. Nice people there, as you know. So, that's the bad thing. It's yeah. it's getting around now. Mm-hmm. And the number of roads and the mileage of roads in Marshfield is increasing. It's putting more of a strain on the DPW. Yeah. Um, it's, it's Traffic is being funneled through these arteries. Uh, you know, I mean, 
I leave my house to get onto Route 3. I'm taking 139 Ocean Street. And I got the lights at Webster Street. I got the lights at Moraine Street. I got the lights at Main, uh, Moraine. I get the lights at Main Street. Mm-hmm. I get the lights up here at Furnace Street. I get the lights up at uh, Union Street. I got to go through five sets of lights and all kinds of traffic coming and going off the sides from all the stores yeah. and other streets, you know, by uh, Parsonage or any of these other side streets and, and CBS and McDonald's, and all wonderful businesses, but traffic in and out, in and out. It's tight. Wow, it's like, you know, you got to give yourself a half hour just to get out of town. Yeah. And, uh, and like I said, going back to the old days, I'd, we'd come off of Route 3, we'd just sail down 139 through the piney, piney cavern, pine trees all around. What a difference. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's... Everybody found the paradise. Everybody found it, that's true. And that's, and you're right, that's... Uh, of course, the big boom was back in the 60s and 70s. If you look at the population figures for Marshfield mm-hmm. and towns like Marshfield. Everybody came down from the city? You see that would happen. They couldn't build houses fast enough. Yeah. You know? I mean, I can't blame people. It's a beautiful place. It's a great place to live. Right. And they were here escaping crime, escaping taxes, escaping dirty air, and hoping for cleaner schools. You know, they, they also People problems. looking for a better life. Yeah. It's human nature. It is. But it costs a hell of a lot of traffic. <laughs> right. Well, the secret's out. You know, the, secret, the secret's out. I mean, um, you know, we talk about all the beautiful places around town, North River, or mm-hmm. the beaches and, and things. I think, I, I know I do. I don't know about you, but there are other people. <laughs> we, we, have, we know beautiful places in town, and I ain't telling you where they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep some secrets. <laughs> Maybe other people know about them. I, I, I also... I, very much do a lot of hiking and climbing and skiing and all that stuff up north. Mm. I know a lot of nice places. I'm not telling you where they are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of selfish, but it's the way it has that's, to be. Sometimes that's what you got to do to preserve that beauty, that paradise. Yeah, that's Just right. Let people figure it out on themselves if they want it. Yeah. But, but I, I, there's still hope. I mean, I haven't given up on Marshfield. There's still they shouldn't. Towns around here. Yeah. There's still hope. But the problem is, is that, you know, I think really, the problem is, is involvement, you know, I mean, really, yeah. you try to be involved. I mean, it's a good thing you don't have to get elected or you have to pay a, a, a big fee to come into a community TV. Um, you can get involved that way. Yeah, if you're a resident, it's $30 a year. Right. But if you want to get involved in other things, there are, other, there are more hurdles to overcome. Some people just like to like to hang on to what they have and not share it. But what are you going to do? And I'm talking about town government. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. and I, but I've um, and that's another thing I do. I've, I've run for different offices in Marshfield. But running for two right now. Yeah, I'm running for two right now. I'm, I'm nominated for two. I'm really making. I'm really only running for one of them right now. But I am nominated for two. So hey. If you want to vote for me twice, fine. For the people who are listening that might not know, what are you running for? Running for, I've been nominated for the uh, position on the Board of Health, mm-hmm. and I've been nominated for a position on the DPW Board, Department of Public Works Board. Mm-hmm. There are two openings on the um, DPW this year because one guy has chosen 
to run for selectmen instead of to run for re-election to the DPW. Mm-hmm. So that seat is open. That's a three-year term. And then another seat, uh, which uh, was uh, which was filled. Uh, Steve uh, Robbins vacated that yeah, one. Yeah, a few years ago, but he resigned. Mm-hmm. So the person that was appointed to fill out that term, to fill out uh, the year until the next year, election. Uh, Steve Hawking. He has decided not to. He's going to resign. Oh, so okay. he's not going to fill out the last year. Um, and uh, so that mean, means there's, a, there's a, actually a one-year slot open there. So there's a one-year slot and a three-year slot. Dave Carrier is running for that one year. Dave Carrier is running to fill the one-year slot, and he's uncontested, correct? And the other one is a three-year slot, which I put my name in for. And um, there are actually several open positions in different boards and in the, in the town, mm. in different elected positions were open. Lots of slots with no candidates a few months ago. And, you know, my sources tell me that there are people in town hall that panicked. And they said, oh, my goodness, we get all these open positions. We don't have people to fill them. What are we going to do? You know, so they started calling up people who served in the past, and they kind of bringing back the old gang. That's my view of it. And that may be kind of a cynical view, but that's what I know happens that people were being recruited to come back. And in the meantime, I had already decided I was going to put my name in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would serve in either one, Board of Health or DPW, because Board of Health and DPW are both dealing in areas that I have some experience with yeah. and a lot of concern, a lot of issues in, that those uh, positions deal with that I, that I would like to be able to have a chance to uh, get involved with finding solutions to. So if you were to win... Let's just say in the event you win both seats, would you be able to serve on both? Or? I've been told you can only serve on one. One elected board? The, the town has a bylaw, mm-hmm. and the town bylaw was written specifically some years ago, and it says no person can be a selectman and serve on the board of assessors at the same time. That's a town bylaw. Mm-hmm. In those I've specific been, words, that's that's it's exactly what it says. Selectmen and board of assessors. Those two things. Years ago, there was somebody who was serving in both positions, and there was some conflicts of interest, I mm-hmm. guess, that arose, issues that arose. I'm not saying they actually did anything bad, but that's what I've been told. Yeah. So, town meeting voted in to put in a bylaw not allowing you to serve as a selectman and an assessor at the same time. I have been told there's a state law that says you cannot serve on multiple boards same multiple time. Therefore, therefore, I've been told that I cannot be a Board of Health and a DPW board member at the same time. Hmm. So would you pick the Board of Public Works? If I had to win? pick one, I'd, they're both very important. Oh, yeah. But I, I think I would be a better fit at the Board of Public Works. You know, uh, I, I'd welcome the opportunity to serve on any any board or committee, but I, I, uh, I for some strange reason, I don't have a friends uh, in town in uh, town town administration uh, I often pay, take positions that are critical or contrary to what their uh, agendas are so funny how that happens yeah. uh, I am not a go along to get along person no you're, you're a bit of a contrarian I, yeah well so you could put it that way <laughs> contrary to what though I mean you can be a contrarian in a good sense sure you know I mean there are some directions that need to be challenged there are some there are some currents that you need to swim against you know, otherwise we wouldn't have uh, the herring runs yeah 
if they weren't Herring willing to fight the current or salmon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I'm trying to spawn right now. <laughs> That's, That's one way to put it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm swimming up river. I'm fighting against the tide. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's okay. I mean, we all, we all should, we all, it's all about free speech, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, in that vein, I got, I got to play devil's advocate. Do you ever think you go too far with it? Maybe do something that's too provocative, you know, because obviously you're rustling some feathers with your show. I am the Pembroke terrorist. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, you know what, I, I'm in my, in, in my work experience, well, I got I got in case anybody doesn't understand what that reference is, like you went out on the during the Trump Hillary during uh, the election. presidential campaign. Yeah, I, I was the Pembroke terrorist. I mean, it's not I'm like I'm you, not bragging you, about it. But no, 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 you went out dressed like an ISIS member. And, I've had involvement <laughs> in the past in, in propaganda, um, in PR propaganda, and in what they call actions, political mm-hmm. actions, um, and I devised a for the listening audience, I devised a political action. I was very much aware, I was very opposed to Hillary Clinton's candidacy for the presidency. Mm-hmm. And uh, following the develop, following the, the, the whole issue of nation building and uh, regime change, yep. um, following what happened in Benghazi to a few brave Americans, um, which is, when I think about it, it really it gets me. But, uh, and following what happened with the development of ISIS and, and all that, and at least in the United States, the involvement and all that, um, the best information and sources I had told me that, you know, that there were Americans actively involved in, in funneling arms. It's like the, the Contra affair back in the 80s oh, yeah. with Reagan. There were, Americans were involved in funneling arms to certain groups and training certain groups in Syria parts of Iraq and Syria and that area. And it was and, and Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State at the time. Uh, she had to know about it. Uh, her cavalier attitude to what happened to our, our brave people in Benghazi is something that really bothers me. It really, really bothered me. So um, the, the, the political action that I devised was to, was to basically... Uh, send the message that um, bad guys around the world would, would be in support of Hillary Clinton. So I dressed up like a bad guy and held the Hillary Clinton sign. With a, with a rubber knife. <laughs> well, I had a plastic knife, yeah. It was a toy knife. I bought at the, uh, the nearby uh, uh, costume store yeah. in Pembroke, you know, the Halloween store. I mean, you know, they're so... <laughs> and someone called the cops on you for it. Uh, yeah, and I... And, uh, well, I don't want to get into all the personalities and political politi- political figures that were involved. Yeah. In that, you know, you know, I don't want to talk about Matt McDonough here, but the um, the uh, the idea was was a, it was a political action. It was it was it was the idea to to you know send the message that you know the bad guys uh, would probably support Hillary Clinton. You know, and uh, it didn't quite work out the way I thought it. <laughs> I ended up in jail. <laughs> Cops <laughs> <No>. came guns drawn. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was bad. But no, I, I'm, 
you know, I, I was not making any trouble. I, you know, people were laughing, beeping their horns, thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was filmed on it some, with someone's smartphone. Be the national news. It went viral. It went across the United <laughs> States. People said, that's great. I get it. Uh, they were laughing and driving by and everything like that. But one particular Democrat politician really didn't like it. Um, and uh, who knows um, how the communications worked after that. Uh, but uh, I ended up in cuffs and uh, got taken away to jail shackles the Pembroke terrorist and, um, <laughs> it was probably I don't know if it was the plastic knife or the, the black ski mask that, that put people over the edge probably the combination yeah you're a big dude honestly you're, what are you like six foot three six four a little over six two yeah but um, so that's people who are listening that's yeah and, uh, the whole thing was dismissed yeah it was it was dismissed and, uh, but you know, there there are things to take from it that I've taken from it, and um, um, so we probably won't see you doing that again. It, it was a form of it was free speech. We're yeah, absolutely. About, we're talking about free speech here. It was a political action. Um, the the absurdity of it was, I thought, obvious. <laughs> I mean, I had a, 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 a you know, you just, oh, if you could see my Hillary sign, it was, you know, I'm with her. You know, stronger together. <laughs> that was the message. You know, ISIS and Hillary stronger together, and uh, and I think it, it could be probably proven. It, it's a fact that terrorist groups over there were stronger because of the actions or inactions of Hillary Clinton. And uh, I don't, I don't think that's libelous or anything like that. But I mean, I, it's, it's my opinion that uh, American policy was wrong, and it supported. Uh, terrorist activities. I mean, we've been at war in the Middle East since I've been born. I'm 26, so like it's. <laughs> and you know the policy, and that's the whole thing is that international policy, American, the United States foreign policy, is is open to debate and criticism. Yeah. You know? um, we can't all just salute and say yes. You know, whatever's right. You know, go ahead. Yeah, we're talking. How many boys and girls died in Iraq? For what? For fake weapons of mass destruction, you know that didn't exist. Yeah, it's such a, a crazy absurd. What are we doing in Afghanistan for? How many years now? Twenty years? Yeah, twenty years. For what? You know, um, and I supported the Iraq War initially because I, I I justified it in my mind. I didn't believe the mass de- weapons of mass destruction, but I could see some other good things that could have come out of it. But I changed my mind very fast as I yeah. started to learn more about it. Because now we have a whole slew of failed states over there. And yeah. Look what's happened to the Syrian civil war. you got terrorist groups popping up this uh, all over the place. You, you defeat one, another one just pops up. I'm, you get more I'm, and more a, radical. I'm, a, I'm kind of in line with a, with a guy named Shura. Written about it. He's a former CIA employee and uh, uh, lecturer, call him professor. Um, and he basically says that one of the reasons why we're getting such kickback from the terrorist groups is because we're there. You yeah. Know, just our presence is not really helping. We could have a presence, but it could be thought out better. You know, I, I, I think to just 
expose ourselves in different places in the world, like to get involved in regime change, nation building, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, um, that's not the way to go. Well, we're imposing our values on people who may not hold the same values or cherish the same things that we do. It's a completely different culture over there. You can't bottle. You can't bottle democracy. No. And just you gotta want it. Sell it like a product. You know. The people have to want it. They have to want to engage. They want. They have to want to be free and be a part of that. And they it's have a totally different history. Yeah. Total different mindset. Uh, total different set of values and experiences. And to think that we can say, you know, we're here. We're here with democracy. And here it is right now, like you know, the, the new. Detergent or something, yeah. New and improved. Uh, it's not the way to go. No, it, just, it doesn't work. I mean, I know from working in the former Soviet Union that uh, you're talking about generations and generations of people being educated and, and, and conditioned, you know, to think and to act and to work in a certain kind of way. Mm. You can't just change that. I mean, people from the United States went to the Soviet Union and they. Instituted basically based economic shock therapy, and what happened was that the economies were destroyed, were like completely wiped out and destroyed, and all kinds of corruption and black market activity came into being. People were selling everything they possibly could. Their currency became worthless, and a lot of that had to do with what Western countries, including the United States, were trying to do. And uh, uh, I, I, the involvement. Money that was involved. I mean, look at uh, 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 Victoria Newland bragged that we had that the United States had spent five billion dollars in Ukraine to make Ukraine a better place. Basically, mm-hmm. she really didn't even say that. She just said, "Well, we invested five billion dollars, you know, to make to, to 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 change Ukraine. Well, change it to what? For what? For who? Yeah, you know." Oftentimes, what happens in situations is you get a bunch of carpet baggers <laughs> that go in there and basically try to suck up all the assets, property, uh, you know, strategic materials, metals, mm-hmm. oil and gas rights, etc., etc., etc. It's crazy. It's, 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 you need to go over there with a bag of hundred dollar bills, and uh, you can basically buy friends and influence anyone. Then get access to strategic materials or facilities and or property. Yeah, um, it's you know, and the, the same thing has happened. Look at the Middle East. You know, the same thing has happened there. It's uh, generations of that kind of attitude of uh, going in there and making a profit or exploiting what you can find. Uh, so, you know, you can tell I kind of maybe spend too much time thinking. You love thinking about the darkness, man. No, no, it's not. Well, it's not you it's, go deep into it. You know, I saw it firsthand. You know. Yeah. I saw it firsthand. It sticks so, with you. So when I saw what what was happening and, and how Hillary and, and the people that were part of the administration when she was in weren't being held accountable or wasn't really even being talked about, uh, it was just a little political action, a little state. <laughs> what difference is it going to make in Massachusetts, right? Yeah, it's pretty solidly blue here. Pretty solidly blue. Not going not to change any too, any fast, any too fast. But I still remember as a kid, you know, as a young person, rather, not as a kid, when Ronald Reagan, you know, won Massachusetts, you know, did he win a primary here? And, uh, 
in Massachusetts wow. in that election. That was a 1980 election. Yeah, 1980 election. I believe he won Massachusetts. Famous, the famous scene of Rob, uh, Ronald Reagan going into the was it the Erie Pub or something in Boston and wasting a mug of beer. And everybody adored him, you know. All the blue Democrats. So I've seen that, but then I see the election that we just had last fall. You know, it's toxic. Wow, you know, it's like what in the world? It almost feels like it's a constant election cycle too. Like I'm dreading this next presidential election because uh, it's just going to be, it's just going to be all over the internet. It's going to be all over everything. It's all anybody's going to talk about, and it's going to be like a year and a half of this. Like it's probably going to yeah. start up pretty soon. It's already started. Yeah, and I'm sick of it. I'm so sick of it. But, like, for example, in the fall, Jeff Deal, who was the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate. You had him on your show, too, which is Yeah, he was on my show at the very beginning, yep. Um, We had a a good discussion, and he won Plymouth County Mm -hmm. in that election. Wow. And he basically tied in a couple of other counties around the state, but places like Essex. Salt Lake up Boston, though. Yeah, but Suffolk County, Essex County, Middlesex County were so overwhelmingly for Elizabeth Warren. But what gets me also gets me though is that while Plymouth County, southeast of Massachusetts, tends to be, you know, quote unquote conservative or Republican, they consistently elect Democrat liberal Democrat congressmen and, and representatives on the state level, you know. Because we had Headland, you know, now we have uh, O'Connor mm-hmm. and this in the state senate. Gets me is that the congressional seats, even for a place that for like representatives from Plymouth County area, up a little bit outside of Plymouth County, but mostly Plymouth County, they always win overwhelmingly. Yeah. And you know, I say to people, geez, if, if you, as a conservative, as a Catholic, as you know, whatever, pick whatever group you demographic you might want, that you would expect to be relatively conservative, if you knew. Delahunt, the previous congressman, or Keating, where they stood on the issues, could you, I mean, would you really still vote for them? They do, because they don't know what these people stand for. And that's a formula for success in the congressional races around here, is that those people, once they get into office, lay low, and you never hear from them. You don't know what they're doing, you don't know what they're voting for, unless you do some research. Yeah. You don't know what they vote for. You don't know what they stand for. You don't know what they sponsor. You don't know if they've had any success in Congress with legislation. You, you really know basically nothing about. I mean, Delahunt could have run and won for office down in Cuba, basically, and they were and they they they're pro-abortion. And, and I, I go, gee, for such a conservative county, why do they win by such great margins? Um, but it, you know, it, it's again goes also back to the issue of education, cable TV, and, you know, internet, getting the word out. Maybe mm-hmm. more people will understand uh, with time how that goes. Look at Marshfield. Every, here's another thing to consider. Every national or state election in Marshfield recently has basically been won by a Republican, mm-hmm. you know. But during the local elections, because Hillary 
huge turnouts. You have 80, 90% turnouts. Mm -hmm. Now you go to a local election, like a town election, like it's coming up April 27th, Saturday. Um, and you have like 5% turnout, if you're lucky. Jeez. And nobody cares. And who, and whoever, and, and, and all the candidates that are basically favored or supported by the Democrat town committee win. And usually the margin is 60-40, 60-40, And the turnout is 5% or something or less. Wow. It's kind of sad. And town and local local politics and local government affects your lifestyle and your pocketbook more than anything else. Oh, absolutely. And it, it leaves these people setting the policy for how to educate your children. Yeah. These are the people that are telling you how much property taxes and you're going to pay on a regular basis and how many overrides. Of course, we have town meeting, too, but guess what? The turnout at town meeting is oh, even it's garbage. Worse. It's, it, it always frustrates me when I uh, when we cover town meeting because that first night you'll see probably like 250 people maybe um, making the decisions uh, for, what, 25,000? $100 million budget. $100 million budget, 25,000 people. Um, and then by like night two or three, there's maybe 50 people in the audience. Right. And it's, you know, just and it's all, all the familiar faces. It's all the people who are either related to or work for the town. I mean, and, and all the town, like the selectmen, the uh, the town uh, the town treasurer or accountant, all the different town officers yeah. in the school committee are all sitting in section one at town meeting. And they always vote in, in lockstep. It is with always the, the, the town government agenda is. It definitely is always people who have either held a public office in town or have been involved in town hall in some way. Um, I noticed that, like almost everybody there. There's like you know, there's a few regular. Not I shouldn't say regular, but just you know, uh, everyday citizens that don't necessarily get involved in town government that go and they participate. Yeah. But it is overwhelmingly people that are in and around town hall on an almost daily basis. It's. Um so sad because the percentages are so small, and the, the, the sector of the political sector that's represented is so skewed towards the establishment. I, I my term for it is the regime. I'm not, I'm <laughs> yeah, not you say that all the time. I, the regime, it is. It's the regime, <laughs> and it's so unbelievable. And again, I, we're talking about 98 million plus dollar budget this year, and it will be decided by basically less than 200 people. And we're told oftentimes in town meeting, please, people, we want to get out of here. <laughs> you know, we don't want to stay here for two nights or three nights. Um, and we work so hard on the budget. Please don't alter or amend anything. I say, what? I'll alter and amend everything for the, if we have to stay here ten nights. I don't care <laughs> what you say about that, you know. Um, I don't want to be here for ten nights either. You want to make sure things get done. But I want to make sure things get done uh, uh, the way I see it. Yeah, Um, I get that. Oh my goodness! You know, it's uh, it's it it really that is so frustrating to see to see how 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 it goes and the lack of participation. But and then you have to ask why don't people go? You know, well, it is a weeknight. People are working. Not only is there maybe something good on TV, uh, like a, a hockey game or a basketball game or something, uh, people have to get up for work the next morning. Yeah. A lot of towns like Duxbury have their first main session of town meeting on Saturday. They, 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 they can 
convene in the morning early. They take an hour and a half off for lunch or whatever, and then they can reconvene in the afternoon on Saturday. Um, they've already had their town meeting, so it's not like the weather's nice now and you don't mm -hmm. want to be indoors. Um, we tried to do that in, Mar in Marshall, but it got shot down. And then people are also frustrated because they don't think their voice counts. Uh, we had a, a town meeting back in, was it 2005, I want to say, when there was a very symbolic but important vote on an issue that was a hot button for a lot of people. The vote was taken, and it was a count, it was a, hand, a standing vote where they actually count each head. Back in those days, we used to do voice votes. They'd say, yay, all those in favor, and then the crowd would scream, yay, and all those opposed, no. And then by the sound, the moderator was trying to decide which way the vote went. Oh, God. <laughs> all right. So then they went to raising of hands. And like some towns like uh, Duxbury now have little clickers. They give everybody electronic clicker. Mm -hmm. So we That's went to hands. expensive. <laughs> we went, right. It's extremely expensive. We went to hands. We talked about paper ballots and all that. That's all been discussed in Marshall. So on that night, it went to what they call a standing vote. And the moderator couldn't decide who won the vote. So they decided to have people for and against stand up alternatively, and then they counted all the heads. At the end of the count, and I should notice, this is like Marshfield history trivia, the final count on the head count was something like, you know, 400 to 400. For, for that many people at a town meeting is really wow. unusual. But for having to come to a tie... That's incredible. ...was... Mind blowing. It was like, wow. And during the vote, people were cheating. <laughs> In other words, I saw a woman vote, um, vote, um, you know, for the measure, and then she voted against the And then she, um, she voted. Uh, well, I'm trying to think now. She, what she did was. Yeah, she wanted to. She wanted the measure to succeed, so she voted for the measure. And as they went from section to section, she moved. She moved, so she would stand up in section uh, three, and then she, and then they, and then they go, okay, now section four, stand up. And then she'd jump over to section four, <laughs> and she would stand up. And I said, what the? Look at this, uh, you know. And so I was. I thought we were going to win on the count, mm -hmm. um, and. To defeat it would have been a victory from my side. We were trying to defeat the measure, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, when the when the count was done, I said, "Wow, we've got a lot of support. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna defeat this measure. This is great." Came out again. That was not the actual numbers, but it was like tied, some incredible number tied. And I said, "Well, that means we we win because in order for a motion to pass, it has to have a majority. Mm -hmm. In order for a motion to fail." It has to fail with an outright majority or a tie. Mm -hmm. A tie is interpreted as a fail. So I said, well, it's tied. We win. In other words, our side wins. Well, the moderator, who hadn't voted and is a resident of Marshfield, could have voted and decided it right there on the spot. But he didn't. Hmm. Instead, he said, I think that this is an important issue and we should vote it again. So I was like, "Why? We want, you know, it's been defeated, you know. And you did a head count, you know." He said, "No, let's do it again, without any justification." In other words, there wasn't, 
like uh, nobody was, even though I had witnessed irregularities that worked against us, we still won in effect, so I decided to protest it. But, so nobody protested, nobody said there was a reason for the recount, but he had it anyway. Now they do the recount, and we lose. Some people are already disgusted and going, oh, I'm getting out of here. We just won, and they're telling us we didn't, we have to vote again. So we did the vote again, and the yes side, the yes side won by a comfortable margin, like in the teens or something, like 15 or 20 votes, whatever. And I was like, that sucks. But while the voting was going on, I noticed that one section, which had about 40 people in it, reported a vote count that was like 60 people. And I said, how can a section where there's 40 people sitting have a vote count that is, um, you know, 45 to 15. I said, that's not right. That can't be correct. So after the vote total was announced, I protested. I said, something's not right. There's a section, section 11 there has got 40 people in it, but the sum of their votes is 60. I said, that's, no, sit down, shut up. The vote's over, sit down. I was told, be quiet, sit down. You're being disorderly, you know, that kind of thing. So, moderator kept saying that. He was like, we're moving on to the next article. And, but other people agreed with me, and I, you know, and they said, yeah, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, so other people started yelling. And eventually the moderator, you know, listened to people, but their arguments were being dismissed. Shortly after that, the guy in that section 11 who had done the vote count said, Mr. Moderator, excuse me, I, 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 I want to just let you know that it's true. There, there was a problem with the count, <laughs> and I did I did make a mistake. You know, it wasn't 25 to 15. It was like 15 to 15 or whatever the count was. Yeah. And, and the moderator goes, oh, jeez, you know, so. Got to do it all over so again. So we did the whole count all over again. But in the meantime, the Keep people that said, screw this, I am. I am never coming back, and if I stay here for, and people's going to be, Joe, if I stay here for another minute, I'm going to, I'm going to punch somebody in the face. <laughs> that was how tense it was, and I, I'm getting, one guy was like, I'm getting a bloody nose, I, I can't, this is incredible, they've already robbed us uh, once, they said, now they, and they robbed us twice, and now they're going to rob us a third time, so they said, see you later, so I think that was a good example of why people don't participate. Because number one, they don't feel their voice matters, they get ignored. And number two, they feel the system's rigged, you know, in some way. And that's a common theme. You know, it goes back to what we started talking about here, is that I understand why a lot of young people are like looking for some radical fix or some radical course. Because as they've been told but actually, and this I agree with, in many ways, the system is rigged. That was Bernie's big uh, uh, motto yeah. in the 2016 election, is the system is rigged. Yeah. That was Bernie. That was, that's the one thing you remember about Bernie's whole campaign pitch, is it's rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged. And now this election cycle coming up, you see Elizabeth Warren using it, mm-hmm. you know, and they're right, the system is rigged. And... Um, I talked about it on my show again last night because, um, again, on a Tucker Carlson program the other night, uh, 
said the reason why Ocasio-Cortez resonates with so many people is because she is saying things that resonate because they are so true and people recognize it. And it is basically the concept that the system is rigged, that we are all, well, he didn't use the term, but I use it on my show a lot. We are, we are in economic shackles. People getting out of school with debt. I, I can't do anything. I, usury system that we have. Uh, all the things that create uh, interest and in, in debt and keep you locked into debt and make it impossible to get out of debt means, like you just said, yeah. you, you're, you're stuck. I'm stuck. I, <laughs> as soon as the money goes out of my pocket, it goes to my student loans or my car payment or things right. like that. And, you know, obviously... I needed those things to do what I do now, right. but at the same time, what did it really cost me? Because now, from the time I graduated at 22 to the time I'm 32, I'm going to be paying off that debt, right. and I'm basically just going to be treading water for that entire time unless I do something radical to get to double my income or something like yeah. that. Like I can't, I can't start a family. I can't build. I can't do things that would put me into the next phase of my life because it's just it's, it's handicapping me and not only for yourself but for your community and your country yeah you know you, you're not you're not that piece of the puzzle that has built this country to the point it's at now where we're just filthy rich compared to the rest of the world oh absolutely but that's all being bled down now yeah now, now we're going into debt now the debt the national debt is being monetized, which means they're printing money to pay for the to make the debt payments. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, how does that work? That's it clown. Doesn't. That's total clown world. That, that, yeah. that doesn't work. That means you'll never get out of debt because you're creating debt while you're paying off the debt. And I'm like, uh-huh. it's like paying off a credit card with another credit card. Exactly. It's a scheme. It's a scheme. Yeah. And so yes, that is why Ocasio Cortez's message, at least. That segment of her message. She's got a lot of messages. I don't think the world's going to end. I don't think global warming is going to kill us in 20 or 10 years, whatever. But that part resonates. It resonated. Bernie resonates because of that. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, although she's very way down in the polls, she's trying to use that message, and the other candidates using that message. And people look at me and they say, You're too conservative. But I'm, I'm like saying, What are you talking about? We're all on the same side. We all have shackles on us right now. You know, uh, I, I, I'm not going to agree to the Green New Deal. I'm sorry. But one thing we have to agree is we got to free up the potential and, uh, that, that exists in the, in, the, in, the, in the population right now. Yeah, I mean, for me That's, personally, like, it's not like I'm lazy and I can't, like, and I'm just, you know, not saving my money properly or whatever. Like, right. I put whatever I can away, right. but it, there's just nothing to put away. been there, but now it's institutionalized. Yeah, it's... We've all been there at some point. It's incentivized now. You know, now it used to be you'd get in trouble, you'd spend too much on this, that, the other thing, you'd get a credit card debt, you'd blow money at the racetrack, or, you know... Whatever. I can't even afford to do that. You'd buy a car <laughs> that you really couldn't afford. Everybody went through that. Yeah. You know, in life. Well, I get that, past. sure. You know, but nowadays, it's like, it's, it's, it's like, this is the way it is for Virtually everybody, mm. you know, except for 0.01%, which is basically living off of the usury system and the monetization of debt. You know, if you're already up there or you find a way to get there, you're fine. But for the vast majority, and what, what, and the end result of all this is a creation of a 
very tiny, tiny privileged class and the elimination of the middle class. Everybody else goes into the lower class. And that's where we're at right now. You know? And yes, that's why I identified with people. I will, I will never vote for Bernie. But I also am not hot happy with Trump. I mean, he's done things that are just, oh my goodness, you know. Look at immigration. <laughs> 70,000 people were detained in March, they say, wow. or February or March. And they say that we're on pace now for them to have to detain 100,000 people crossing the border. So I say, wait a minute, President Trump promised to close, to secure the border, et cetera, that he's got opposition. But the opposition has got is that people that want these waves of immigrants to come. They want it. It, it serves their agenda, their purpose. But at the same time, Trump is not doing what he could be doing. And we have to have secure borders. Uh, people, there are people for secure borders for a variety of reasons. And there are people that are against secure borders for a variety of reasons. And one of them is the fragmentation, I believe result of it is the fragmentation of the country. Because now you're going to have no people that can, I mean, we're going to be so concerned and overwhelmed with taking care of illegal immigrants that we're not going to be able to pay attention to any other issues in this country. It's maddening. It's and, 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 and with all that, again, there goes your opportunity for your generation and subsequent generations to, uh, to make their way in the world, so to speak. Yeah, it's... I mean, there's I just got to hustle. <laughs> well, I mean, that's we all grew up thinking that. Yeah. But there's no group like your your generation and that age group that's so far behind the ball from the get-go. Yeah, I, I don't want to play the victim, you know. It's tough. No. And the answer isn't just the wholesale discard of, of the system we have and the Constitution we have. That's I don't think that's no, what the answer is. No, definitely not. Even worse is how different groups are being set against each other. And like you said, we have this yeah. bipolar. We have people on one side and the other side, and we're getting further and further apart when there's actually so much that we could be agreeing on right now. Yeah, absolutely. I've even said it on my show. I said, I've even said it on my show, I wish that Trump would invite Ocasio Cortez to the White House. I really do. Mm-hmm. I wish he'd invite her in and say, you know what? You're crazy. This is where I can see it going. You're nuts. You're not going to get a dead uh, green deal over my dead body. But you know what? There's a couple. I like. I admire your spirit. And again, I don't want to be like some people that are saying this is how Trump should speak. I'm not saying that. Yeah, yeah. There are some people that say, oh, what Mr. Trump should do is he should put it this way, you know, on any issue. I'm not saying that. It's just my fantasy. Yeah. That I see someone like a Trump or someone on the right. So-called writers are saying, taking our kind of contest aside and say, look, you know, you just got to Congress. You're 29 years old. You were a bartender. You were recruited, okay? You're basically a product of, you know, mass marketing, whatever it is. But I like your spirit. I like your, de- and I hope you're dedicated. I hope you're sincere. Uh, but listen, we're on the same side on this, this, and this, okay? This is... This is the key to success here. Let's work together on those issues. Let's work together on the cost of education. First of all, let's understand why does education cost what it does? Why are you crying out for free college? Why? What caused that? What got us here? Then we can find a solution. You know? 
that's, we do. That's my fantasy, that, that somebody would do that. You know, why can't you have a family? Why are you talking? Why are you saying stuff, uh, uh, Alexandra? Why are you saying that people should think twice about having children? What? It's so silly. silly. Babies are wonderful. I couldn't afford to have one if I wanted to. <laughs> but uh, that's another issue for another day. <laughs> Joe, we just did two hours. <laughs> I gotta yeah. get back to work. <laughs> All right. I don't know what you're gonna do with that. I don't know if you're gonna. Check I'm gonna it post it up. Uh, no, I'm just gonna leave that as it is. Okay. And, uh, I'm gonna put it online. Uh, hey. I feel thank like you've been here for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's one still, o'clock now. We started at like eleven. <laughs> time still flew though. Yeah. Thank you for coming in. This is this has been awesome. I think we had a good conversation. Is this? Uh, Tune in on Wednesday at uh, 7 p.m. In whatever planet <laughs> may be uh, on. Uh, yeah, tune in to 7 p.m. Control. 7 p.m. If you're a Marshfield resident, don't forget to vote. Yeah, please vote. Um, Come to town meeting, too. Town meeting is April 22nd. Mm-hmm. That's a Monday. Yeah, please vote. Tune in 7 p.m. Wednesday. Joe goes live, control room, and then immediately after is uh, the open chair. Followed by Pockets on Thursday nights. Yep. And you're doing South Shore News still? Uh, yeah, we're doing uh, Marshfield Community News. So we're changing up the format a little bit. Yeah. So instead of doing the uh, bi-weekly uh, format, we're just going to start posting things online, uh, news stories directly online. Because yeah. uh, by the time they get posted on our uh, TV channel, they might be a little outdated. So we want to just change up the format and keep it fresh. So. Interesting. But we'll still have the, the bi- we'll still have it. On running on the channels, but we're just going to compile them into an episode. So I see. That way well, we can say I don't fresh, think you have much to worry about, Sean. You, you, you've got talent. And, Thank you. And all that you, you, you kind of I, I met Jeff Law when he was a local local uh, reporter. Now he's like the, the anchor for CBS Evening News. You remind me a little bit of Jeff Law. So if people listening can't imagine what you look like. <laughs> <laughs> so this, 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 there's places for people. Uh, hopefully the truth gets out. Yeah, I hope people participate. I hope this country, yeah. you know, turns around, everything improves, and things go good. I mean, honestly, everything's We're okay. We're counting on it. There's no alternative. Yeah. There's no, there's, the alternative is unthinkable. Yeah. So. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks for coming Thank in. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This, is, uh, this has been Meet the Members. I'm Sean Leary, and I've been talking with Joe Busevich, the host, producer, and creator. Thanks for listening, guys. And-